0: You are listening to Episode 22, Peanuts and Eggs and Food Allergies Oh My. everyone, Welcome to the PeDS Doc Talk Podcast. I'm your host Dr. Mona, where each week I hope to educate and inspire you in your journey through parenthood. With information on your most common concerns as a parent and interviews with fellow parents and experts in the field, my hope is you leave each week feeling more educated, confident, and empowered in the decisions you make for your child. Hello, and welcome to this episode. Okay, this is an episode that so many of you have been DMing me about and commenting about because you really want to know about food allergies. And I'm so happy to have Dr. Shreya Patel, who's back again. We actually did an Eczema 101 episode. That was episode seven. And she's back again um, talking about food allergies. Welcome, Dr. Patel.
1: Hi, Mona. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to be back to talk all things food allergies today.
0: And Dr. Shreya Patel, she's a um, allergist immunologist, as you guys probably know if you listen to Eczema One Hundred and One. And so we're going to be talking again all about food allergies, um, introduction of food allergens, just some of the basic kind of statistics on it. Uh, We hope this episode really provides you some reassurance. We know that a lot of people and my patients, her patients are very scared of introducing allergenic foods. We're going to go over obviously signs and symptoms. And we're also going to be talking about F pies, which is a condition that I don't think a lot of families know about. So first of all, Dr. Patel or Shreya, we're going to go first name basis here. (laughs) Um, Tell me just basically the statistics, you know, for food allergies in general, you know, obviously in the pediatric population.
1: Yeah so um, kind of based on literature national surveys the prevalence of food allergies is kind of between they say about 7 to 10% of the population now specifically for children it's a little bit on the lower end of that 7 to 10% but it's if you think about it one in 13 kids so when you think about classroom sizes that's about one to two kids per every classroom if you think about it. so that's actually pretty high and what's interesting when we report prevalence in food allergies is self reported prevalence is higher than the actual prevalence. So self reported prevalence is closer to 13 to 14%. And remember, I said the actual prevalence is seven to 10%. So I, th- I think that's interesting, because more people think they have food allergies, than they actually do. So that kind of stresses the importance of really talking to your doctor, seeing a specialist, finding out is it really a food allergy? Or are you avoiding a food for another reason? Or are you missing something else? So I thought that was interesting.
0: So is it more that maybe uh, families or patients think that a symptom is an allergy when when in reality it's not?
1: Yes, exactly. Or it could be not a real food allergy, but something else like an intolerance or something, which of course we're going to get into, I think a little bit later.
0: Awesome. And in terms of, you know, many families will say like, you know, I have a family history. Is it always a family history of allergies that predisposes someone to have a food allergy or can someone just develop it without any family history?
1: yeah so I, I like to say that children they're not born with food allergies they're not born with allergies what they're born with though is a genetic predisposition to develop allergies in general so to answer your question do you have to have allergies um, in the family no and also you don't have to have food allergies which I think is interesting because I have patients who come in you know and they tell me uh, I've been avoiding seafood my whole life because my mom's allergic to shrimp right and and that's not necessarily how it works, actually. So your mom can be allergic to shrimp or seafood, and you might now present with allergies that are totally different, like seasonal allergies or asthma or eczema. Now, you kind of had this as um, allergy um, predisposition because of your genetics, but it doesn't have to be the same kind of allergy, okay? Now, to address the whole issue of children who don't have a family history. So why is that? Well, we know genetics play a role in food allergies, but also environment plays a role too. There's like an interplay between the two. Now, the million dollar question in the food allergy world is why do some people have food allergies and others don't? We don't know all the full answers to that quite yet. Um, But we do know that there is a a, a role that both genetics as well as environment plays. So um, based on some of the surveys and the the, um, studies that have been done, they say that about 70 percent of children with food allergies have a family history. But that leaves about 30 percent that don't. Right. So um, it's not necessary that you have it.
0: And you kind of mentioned that there's obviously, there's so much to learn in the food allergy world mm-hmm. and allergy world. Do you do you feel like food allergies are more prevalent now than say 20 years ago?
1: Yeah, I do. And actually, so if you look at the CDC reports, they um, reported that the prevalence of food allergy in children increased by about 50% between 1997 and 2011. That's pretty high. Peanut and Trina was thought to have tripled in incidence. So Um, It's definitely on the uprise. Now, uh, again, another important question in the food allergy world is why, why is that? Why are food allergies so much more prevalent? So I think that there are um, a lot of theories out there, but the two most widely accepted ones are going to be the hygiene hypothesis and then you have the dual allergen exposure hypothesis. Okay. So let's start with the hygiene hypothesis. I think that's the one that at least everybody's heard of, kind of knows a little bit about it. So the hygiene hypothesis suggests that early exposure to microbes or, you know, microorganisms in your environment It helps train our immune systems and also helps build our gut microbiome. We talked about this a little bit in the eczema episode, right? The gut microbiome. What is that? That's basically the normal healthy bugs in our GI system, okay? So if you lack this initial exposure, then you can actually develop a dysbiosis or an imbalance in this, um, in this uh, microbiome. And then this can lead to actual sensitization in your immune system rather than tolerance. So what does that mean? What does sensitization mean, right? So, so take a child, for example, okay, they're introduced to dairy, okay, in their diet. Now, instead of the immune system tolerating the dairy, like it should, or like in most people, it does, the immune system detects it as foreign for some reason, okay? And it develops an antibody against the milk. So this antibody is the IgE antibody or immunoglobulin, E and that's the allergic antibody, okay? And the more and more this child is then introduced to dairy. Now it in some children it's right away, versus in some children it takes more exposures, but your body makes more immunoglobulin or more antibody against it. And eventually this can then turn into a clinical allergy. And this is when the child is, you know, then exposed to the dairy and now has um, actual clinical allergy, like an allergic reaction, okay? So um, the basis of this theory of the hygiene hypothesis came from really comparing children in the developing world to children in um, developed countries, okay? The initial hypothesis was that living in dirtier environments would result in more allergies and more asthma, but now we know that that's actually not the case. That's the opposite, right? Um, That this initial exposure to a quote-unquote dirty environment is actually helping to train your immune system, and it's protective, against developing allergies. So that's kind of the hygiene hypothesis, okay? Now the second hypothesis is a little bit more simpler, but that's the dual allergen hypothesis, okay? And what this one suggests is um, early oral exposure to allergenic foods is protective and that helps train your immune system and helps you tolerate it. So you develop less allergies if you start allergenic foods earlier. Um, But the, the dual part of that is that early exposure through the skin can actually increase your risk of developing food allergies. And so, again, that stresses the importance of pre- uh, strengthening that skin barrier, right, and children with eczema.
0: Yeah. So I agree. You know, the, I also kind of have always thought about the hygiene hypothesis and a lot of it has to do with, um, the research that's done about dogs, right? Like pets in the home can obviously reduce the incidence of allergies, but it's not always that anyone who has a pet, it automatically equates to that child, not having allergies. There's obviously multiple things that go into a child's gut microbiome and, you know, obviously immune system. Right.
1: Right, exactly. And remember, it's genetics, too. It's the environment, too. So yeah, you'll have the child that grows up in a home with animals who um, is now protected against developing that allergy because they were exposed early on, their immune system was trained to it. And so now, you know, they're not going to develop an allergy. But then you have the opposite, where you have a child who um, comes to see me for the first time when they're four or five, they have a dog in the home, and they're severely allergic to the dog. And that's why they're coming to see me, you know, so, so there's just so many things to kind of think about um, that that are going on that predispose this child to
2: having allergies.
0: And, you know, I, I think I spoke about it with you on the eczema episode, but if, of all the things in pediatrics, GI research and allergy immunology research is, research is very fascinating to me. Meaning um, obviously pro the, the benefits of probiotics, like obviously all this kind of stuff that's going to continue to come out, right. Um, how we can externally or artificially impact our immune system, right? And right now, there's just not a lot of data, right? Because I think parents are always like, well, how can I help my child's immune system, especially in like this pandemic? And really, there's really no known, known uh, way right now that we can say, okay, do this, and you're going to have an amazing immune system, correct?
1: correct i mean it's all anecdotal you'll hear people all the time saying i take you know xyz whether it be i know elderberry is something that people talk about all the time you know and like there there just really isn't enough literature out there that definitely supports it's that it actually you know strengthens your immune system really there's nothing like that i mean the only thing we know really is vaccinations so that's that's it
0: yeah i mean i'm definitely intrigued and i love i love ha- making you as having you as a friend now because any of the new research that comes out, I'm going to be like, Shreya, you need to let me know because it is an area of such research, especially in pediatrics. So that's awesome. Now, the next thing I wanted to ask obviously is there are many things that children can be allergic to in terms of food, but what are the most common foods that cause food allergies in children?
1: Yeah. So um, the top eight food allergens are really going to be milk, egg, wheat, soy, peanut, tree nuts, shellfish, and fish. Okay, those are going to be your top eight. So that's the most common ones. Now remember, peanut and tree nuts are two totally different things. Um, peanut is a legume and tree nuts are, you know, just like in, in its name, nuts that grow on trees. So tree nuts include walnut, pecan, cashew, pistachio, almond, hazelnut, um, Brazil nut is another one as well. Now, just because you're allergic to one does not necessarily mean that you're allergic to the other, meaning peanut and tree nuts. But there is about a 30% chance, you know, peanut allergic children have a 30% chance of also being allergic to tree nuts, Um, but not necessarily always the case. The other thing, same thing with fish and shellfish know that those are different as well. Fish is going to be like Tuna, salmon, flounder, shellfish is gonna be your shrimp, um, crab, lobster. So just because you're allergic to one doesn't necessarily mean you're allergic to the other. Sesame is unofficially kind of considered right now the ninth most common food allergen. But remember that's a seed, sesame seed, it's not a nut. Um, but um, but that's still, that's still pretty up there and it's pretty common
0: and can kids of all of those um are there some that kids are more likely to outgrow or are all of them pretty much lifelong what are the what is kind of the data research on that
1: yeah, it definitely depends on the food. So, milk, egg, wheat, and soy, those are the ones that usually you think kids are more likely to grow out of. I typically tell parents that your child has about an 80 to 85% chance of growing out of those. So, milk, egg, wheat, and soy by the time they're in their teenage years. So, that's a really good chance, you know, of, of growing out of it. Um, peanut, Trina, and seafood, those are unfortunately the ones that are going to likely be more lifelong allergens. Only about 20% of people are likely to grow out of peanut, 14% tree nut, and only about 5% seafood, which is why adults have the, the most common food allergy in adults is seafood.
0: And in terms of, so I think the big question that everyone has, every parent is, what are the signs and symptoms? And I think this might be a big discussion because, you know, there, we'll talk about, you know, introduction of these actual foods and foods in general, but what would be a symptom of a food allergy um and you know obviously the timing and also what would be the difference you know you can get into this between a intolerance of a food maybe if you can see that on an exam versus an actual allergy
1: yeah so if you're allergic to a food right and you have exposure to it so your child says allergic to dairy and and you know they have this, some sort of exposure to dairy usually your symptoms are going to start what we call immediate, you know, it's immediate reaction. So within the first 30 minutes to an hour, you're usually going to see some sort of symptoms. So what are those symptoms? Um, They can be really anywhere in your body, okay? What I like to do is kind of break it up into systems. Like, for example, the skin, if the skin is affected, I think that that is actually the most common. I was going to say, I think that's what parents report as the most common, but that's because it is the most common organ usually involved. So um, that's going to be your hives and also swelling. Swelling is all part of the skin system okay so when people come in and they say my childhood um, hives all over the place and then a swollen lip, right? That's the skin. Then you can also just have it, you know, itching, itching anywhere, itching on the skin, itching in the throat. It's what people say, like the, the roof of the mouth itches, itching really anywhere. Okay. Um, if the respiratory system is involved, you'll have coughing, trouble breathing, even the subtle throat, <clears> throat>, throat clearing. That is also kind of the respiratory system being involved. You'd be surprised. Actually, I've had p- patients have anaphylaxis in my office and one of the only um, one of the main symptoms that they have is that their voice just changes mm-hmm. or they have like that <clears throat> and then their voice becomes hoarse. And that's really the respiratory system being involved as well as probably, you know, some swelling in the throat. Um, you can also have lightheadedness, your blood pressure could drop. Um, and then remember the GI system. The, G, the GI system is important. A lot of people forget that vomiting and diarrhea can actually be a sign of having an allergic reaction. Some patients will even report to me that they have this sense of impending doom. And that's when you really um, are probably dealing with a more serious allergic reaction. Like I said before, you're going to have these more immediate rather than delayed. So the delayed reactions are rare in food allergies. Okay. Have I seen it? Yes. I've actually done food challenges in my office and they're totally fine for four hours of observation. And then they call me an hour after they go home and now the eye is swollen or they have hives. So can it happen? Yes. But it's definitely more rare. You're usually going to see it more immediately in the first, like I said, hour. Um, you can have something called a biphasic reaction where you have the initial reaction to the culprit allergen. And then, you know, you're treated, whether it be EpiPen, you know, antihistamines, whatever you recover. And then anywhere from like four to 24 hours later, you have this second reaction. It's still the f- uh, part of the first um, episode. So you don't necessarily call it a delayed reaction, but it's a, like a biphasic reaction, part of the first um, allergic reaction. Um, and then go ahead. Sorry.
0: Oh, uh, no. And, uh, and then I was going to ask because you were saying about the initial versus the, 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 delayed response being a little bit more rare. One of the most common, I think misconceptions or not misconceptions, but, um, there's no consensus on this is how many days you need to keep in between introduction of foods. Is there an official recommendation or is this more of like a, um, just or some like basically how someone wants to practice?
1: There's not an official recommendation, but but most, I think, pediatricians and allergists will say at least wait three days between um, introduction of foods, and that's because Um, you know, we kind of talked a little bit about the sensitization, right? That sensitization process. You're exposed to a food for the first time, your body starts making that antibody if it's going to, you know, and some they just tolerate it. And others, it it starts making this IgE allergic antibody against the food. And then if upon re-exposure, they may not have a reaction that first time, but then upon re-exposure, maybe the second day, they make a little bit more IgE. And then by the third day, now there's enough that they're actually gonna have a clinical reaction. That's what we usually say about three days to leave in. between. There's no official recommendation. But I usually say wait, you know, and then the other thing is, if you um, it's easier to identify what caused it versus then you're coming in and you're like, yeah, these are the five different foods that my child ate for the first time over the last three days, you know, it's just easier to identify than even for the doctor what actually caused the, the problem.
0: And there may not be a concrete answer for this, but is there is there a number of exposures? Just say a mom gives their their child peanut butter or like a peanut butter powder and they've exposed their child to that now for, you know, seven times, eight times. Is it safe to say that they now have no allergy? Is there a number of exposures that will tell us that, oh, well, maybe we're in the clear or no?
1: No, there's no number. Um, I would say the more times they've had it. Yeah, you're, you're less likely to ever develop an allergy. But I mean, there's even adult onset food allergies. If you yeah. think about that, someone who's been eating seafood their whole entire life, all of a sudden comes in and now they're allergic. So no, you're really never safe from it. <laughs> um, but it's just it's it's more likely that you will tolerate it after you've had it, you know, a few days in a row.
0: And so you obviously talked about the the symptoms and you went through it beautifully with all the different systems. So what should a parent do if they are concerned based on the symptoms? And what I'm asking is more, you know, is this worthy of just a phone call to the pediatrician? Can they treat it at home without calling a pediatrician? Do they need to go to the ER? If you can kind of, you know, in a nutshell, kind of say, you know, what your recommendations would be if someone's concerned about their child having a food allergy.
1: Yeah. So I think that a lot of that depends on whether it's a known food allergy and how comfortable the the family is really. So first of all, if it's not a known food allergy, I, I would say any sort of reaction, you know, definitely call, call your pediatrician, especially if it's mild, because we kind of talked a little bit about, um, what those symptoms are and I'll go into what, what I deem mild versus more severe, but, um, you know, when in doubt, always call your doctor. And the thing is, is if you don't, if the child doesn't have a known food allergy, then you may not be prepared with the right medications, whether it be antihistamines. You probably most definitely don't have an EpiPen at home, you know? So, so definitely you want to be calling your doctor at that point. Okay. So mild versus severe. When are you going to call your doctor versus when are you going to go to the emergency room? So we kind of talked about the different systems that are involved, right? So usually when it's deemed a milder reaction, you're talking, one system involved. Okay, so your child is allergic to dairy, they may have been exposed to a little bit of dairy, whether it be cross contamination, or actually, you know, just ate a piece of cheese or something like that. And now they have hives. Okay. Otherwise, your child's acting fine, um, just a little bit itchy, maybe, Uh, then, you know, I would say you could treat if, if this is a known allergy, you already have a plan with your doctor in place, you potentially already have an allergist, then you could potentially just treat with an antihistamine and call your doctor. Okay. Now, when we're talking about one system involved, but it's severe. Okay. So you don't have a rash, there's no swelling or anything. And the only thing that's involved is um, the respiratory system, the lungs, right? And, but it's not just a little cough. It's that they can't breathe (laughs) or they're swelling, but it's swelling of the throat, you know, anything like that. Of course, even if it's just one system involved, you obviously want to be probably at this point, just calling 911, even just skipping the the pediatrician's office at this point, or even your allergist. Um, two or more systems involved. That's actually one of the definitions of anaphylaxis and one of the indications for you to use your EpiPen and call 911. So what that means is hives plus swelling. Um, Difficulty breathing plus vomiting or even just a subtle throat clearing. Those are kind of the reasons when you're giving the EpiPen, you're not waiting, you're giving the EpiPen and you're calling 911. You're not driving to the emergency room either. You're calling 911 while you're giving the EpiPen. Okay. Um, Remember that with babies and younger children, this is actually a little bit trickier. Um, cause yes, they can have the typical symptoms, hives, swelling, vomiting, cough. You know, you might notice that they're breathing a little bit, um, more, they're struggling to breathe a little bit more, but they can also have the sudden tiredness. They're limp. They're lethargic. These are kind of different signs that babies can present with, but it is indicating that it's a more severe allergic reaction. And again, this is when you probably want to be calling 911.
0: So if it is a mild, you know, what you said, like the one system involved, um, I'm going to use an example, which I commonly get of it just being a rash, right? Like a child eats egg. And then all of a sudden, mommy says, like, the cheeks are red, the chest is red. Are those mild symptoms, the rash, especially, is it a full body? Or can it just be cheeks? Or can it just be, I commonly get asked about diaper, like the diaper is red and nothing else? Or would you really see it throughout the whole body? Or can it just depend?
1: It can depend. It can be anywhere. And the other thing to think about is um, with food allergy especially in babies it can present as two different kinds of rashes really hives or even just an eczema flare right so I find that when the cheeks are kind of flaring it's it's probably more the eczema versus if they actually have that blotchy red rash throughout the body that's hives I haven't had much experience with the diaper the diaper turning red that's an interesting one that's a new one to me um, that is I'm not quite sure about that one. That would probably be something that you know, as long as the baby's acting fine, you probably just want to bring them in and and check them out and see. I always say with rashes, take pictures. If you can't bring them in, take pictures. And even if you're on your way, take pictures because they tend to disappear when when you get into the doctor's office. And then we have a really hard time really deciding: well, is it just a diaper dermatitis, you know, or is it really an? Because eczema, as you know, commonly does not present in the diaper area. So and so, it's hard to say. And hives just being present there there and not anywhere else is also very unusual to me. Um, So yeah, but if it's just mild rash, known food allergy, already have a plan in place, uh, have an EpiPen just in case, it's okay to give an antihistamine at home. Um, Again, antihistamines are, you know, the Benadryl, Zyrtec, Claritin, Allegra, those are things you want to talk to your doctor about what you should have at home. The appropriate dosing for it, when to give it, and then what to look for afterwards to know what else to do. But I would say, you know, after you give the antihistamine, you still want to call your pediatrician or your allergist and just discuss what should I do now?
0: And so if it is a, and again, I'm ta- um, a lot of my, a lot of my listeners may be first time parents that they're trying, they're about to introduce solids. So if it is that it's a mild reaction going back to that, right, let's just use that rash and rash as an example. Um, and then they call their pediatrician. They say, okay, just monitor. Do they need to do testing at that point? Or do they monitor for further um, reactions? Or what's kind of the, I guess, the, the testing protocol or food avoidance protocol once they have a mild, re, re, mild presumed reaction?
1: It's really dependent on the patient and the entire, all the details of the reaction. So at that point, they should be seeing an allergist. I mean, we ask questions like, okay, what exactly did you eat? How much of it did you eat? Did you eat one bite of it? Did you eat two bites of it? Okay, if it's egg, how did you eat the egg? Was it um, cooked? Was it partially cooked? Was it baked? I mean, there are so many questions we ask. Then we ask, when did the reaction start? How soon after? What did you do? How long did it last? You know, there are so many things that we ask. So I really think it's important at that point, even if you think there may have been some sort of a reaction, at that point, you should really be going to see the specialist. And then getting skin tested. If, if, you know, most of the time we're not sure either. And so at that point, we, we do skin test because a lot of times it is a convincing history, you know, after you do all that questioning, it's convincing. So usually you don't want to just do it at home. If you're unsure, I would at least talk to a specialist at that point.
0: That is great. No, that is great advice because, you know, there's common, what I, what I found through my obviously practice is when I, as I started, I've, I've only been practicing for five years, but even that mild reaction, like the, the, little bit of hives, right? Like that can actually be something. And so parents will say, okay, maybe it was nothing. I don't need to really evaluate it ever, but I think it's a good idea. And I agree with you. It's not going to hurt anyone just to get it evaluated. And definitely a family should let their pediatrician know if there's any sort of reaction after eating, especially obviously with these allergenic foods that were mentioned, but any sort of food, right? It's it's any, any reaction of any kind, especially that's ingested into the body. You want to, you want to make sure, um, my, you know, Why I asked about the diaper question, and I agree with you, I don't think the diaper is any indicator of a food allergy, but I'm going to speak to what I think just commonly that I, you know, for all the families like, oh my gosh, yes, my child ate this fruit and then all of a sudden had a rash in the diaper. I think sometimes the foods may change the um, acidity of our poop. And that poop, when it comes out, can cause more rashes, so I think that's what parents are probably seeing. I agree with you. I do not think it's a food allergy per se, but of course, if it's persistent and all over or cheeks and swelling. but I think that's kind of why I brought up that comment is that sure, foods can change the our you know GI system a little bit and can cause the poop to change, but I, I wouldn't call it, cause that and call that an allergy, but that's why I asked that, but I was curious. So when is this is the big question? when is the best time to induce the common allergens? You know, all those eight that you said, um, is there a time frame that is ideal based on obviously the literature and your experience?
1: Yeah, the new recommendations based on all the recent studies in the last few years is really that introduction of allergenic foods is gonna be done with all the other foods between four and six months of age. So um, you definitely still wanna talk to your pediatrician kind of about what's the best foods um, to introduce first, as in oatmeal cereal, rice cereal. I mean, nutritionally speaking, you know, um, and also just developmentally speaking. So, starting with the cereals and vegetables, fruits, things like that, and then one by one, starting to introduce kind of the allergenic foods. Um, and then, of course, talk to your pediatrician about whether your child falls into more of a higher risk um, category, where maybe they need to get tested first or talk to an allergist first before they we determine whether they should just go ahead and introduce between four and six months with all the other foods.
0: And if for anyone listening who has not listened to my intro to solids episode, I actually, we talk, I talk with, um, Caroline Weeks, she's a dietitian about the intro to solids. So this episode is all about food allergies. Um, you know, one of the common things that parents are asking now, because, you know, under obviously four to six months or four to seven months, a baby may not be ready to eat like if they're doing like table foods or baby led weaning. So there's a lot of products on the market right now. Ready, set food, spoonful one, um, mix-ins, like, you know, the powdered kind of allergenic foods. What are your thoughts about that? Do you think that they are beneficial? Do you think parents need to use them? Just overall kind of wrecks on that.
1: So I definitely don't think parents need to use them. Do I think they're beneficial for some parents? Yes, especially the ones who are a little bit more nervous and don't necessarily, you know, understand how to start introducing some of the allergenic foods, they can definitely be useful. Okay. Now, do you need to go out and spend a lot of money on them? No, because even allergists, if you just talk to your pediatrician or your allergist, they can give you certain recipes. For example, um, you know, I have my children a little bit older. So we didn't have these these little mixins before and, and I just took peanut butter and mixed it with a little bit of water. Now, like I said, there's actual recipes that that, that are online that are available that you can talk to your doctor about. Um, and then I just kind of introduced peanut peanut butter like that, you know, between I think my both my kids were around five to six months old when I kind of started introducing that. So there are ways to do it without purchasing those things. However, for parents who maybe, like I said, are not as comfortable, um, it's definitely it, it makes things sometimes a little bit more streamlined and a little bit easier because they are like pre mixed portion size, almost like powder packets that you can just mix directly into like the applesauce or whatever you're already feeding your child. So some some parents love it.
0: Yeah. And I, I was actually kind of looking at all those products and they definitely, there's been a boom of those products definitely in the last, I would say two to three years, um, as I think more literature and more understanding of food allergies has come out. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I agree. I I think it's one of those, it's one of those things where I don't think it's a bad thing, but I don't think, Every family needs it because I have tons of patients who are able to introduce these allergenic foods, um, without any sort of, you know, um, program or subscription services. So if you're listening to this and you feel like you want to buy it by all means do it. I think it, it, like, for example, um, one of them, I think it's ready, set food. It's like organized by day. Like, okay, on this day you introduce this packet. I think it's nice if you need to stay organized, but if you can come up with that plan on your own, I think, you know, okay, I'm going to introduce a little bit of peanut butter and water. I'm going to, you know, ground up some egg and make it obviously a little fine. I personally use the mixins because it's powder and I like it just because it mixes into puree really easily. This is not sponsored. This is just what I use. But I obviously, as Ryan starts to get older and starts to do more like table-ish foods, I won't need to do it. So it's really a short-lived thing. This a lot of this stuff because at some point, And I actually, in the intro to solids, we actually talk about this. You want to give your child what you're eating when they're obviously developmentally ready. And that can Mm -hmm. be as early as seven months, guys. So you don't really need all this stuff for quite some time. It's going to be maybe two months, three months if if your child's um, showing signs of readiness. So I appreciate your thoughts, you know, because obviously as an allergist, um, these things are really big. And there's definitely a lot of research that goes behind it. So know that it is safe if you use it, but that you can still early, you know, introduce allergenic foods early if you don't use these programs. So 100% agree with you. So the other question that I commonly get asked, um, and I actually had put up a question box on my, my Instagram, and this was one of them. What if a child, um, has a sibling or a family member with food allergies? What is, can they still get that food? Do they have to get tested before? There's all these questions about that.
1: This is really tricky. Okay. Um, so Mostly because if one child or family member is in the same household and and has a food allergy, let's take milk again, for example, right, then I typically recommend that there be no milk in the home, right, because you want to prevent accidental exposure, cross contamination, um whether it's realistic or not, especially if it's a severe allergy, we we still do usually make that recommendation. Now, that being said, this is where it becomes tricky is if you have one sibling that's allergic to milk but then has maybe a younger sibling that's not allergic to milk, um then, you know, they could pr- benefit from both the nutritional aspects of dairy plus having dairy in their diet to prevent sensitization in the future. So that's usually when I say, okay, depending on, you know, we talked about family history, increasing the risk. I think it's about like, if you have um, a, a parent or a sibling, it increases your chance of a food allergy by about 20 to 25%. And if it's like both, both parents plus sibling, it's even higher than that. So at that point, we probably um, would test that sibling um, to see if they're allergic or not. Now, if we test them and they're not allergic, then, um, I, what I usually recommend is you can have the non allergic child ingest that food either outside of the home or if they're gonna do it in the home, kind of have like a safe room or a designated space that they, that they can eat it only there. And then after they do, you wanna wipe it down, you wanna clean it, but we're all experts right now with this pandemic on, on sanitizing. So you wanna, you wanna just wipe everything down and sanitize it. You wanna make sure to wash the child's hands, their mouths, potentially even just change their clothes too in case they have any of the, you know, the food protein on their, on their clothes before they have any contact with their sibling. So like I said, this is really tricky um, and that's why it's a very good question. Um, but again, this is really when you want to have a specialist just involves, anyways, because everything kind of like, I feel like a broken record, but everything is very case by case. And it's really a long conversation that you're going to sit down with your allergist and, sh- you know, she or he is going to get the entire history of every family member of your current child that you're talking about. Do they have eczema? You know, do they have any other risk factors, really? And then we make the decision
0: together what to do. I appreciate you saying that because it is, it is exactly that. And especially this is why educational content on Instagram and podcasts can be pretty difficult because it's not a one size fits all it's, you know, medicine is such that it's catered obviously to the individual, um, which kind of, which kind of leads me to my next question. And I know, you know, this may require obviously a doc. The, the child's pediatrician to be involved. But in terms of early introducing these allergenic foods to babies with eczema, I think there's a misconception that all eczema children have to have delayed introduction of foods, but that's not the case, right?
1: Right. That's not the case. Yeah. So um, based on algorithms, actually, that allergists have created from studies, um, if your eczema is mild, you can just introduce it as if, as if any other child, just introduce the allergenic foods between four and six months. Now, of course, again, everything's individualized. If a parent is not comfortable, if they're nervous, talk to your pediatrician about it. But if it's mild, usually it's recommended that you can go ahead and introduce it. And to kind of understand that mild, moderate, severe, definitely, you know, go back to the eczema episode. We do touch base a little bit on that. (laughs) Um, So that's where you can get a little bit more information on that. But if it's mild, go ahead and introduce. Now, when you get into the moderate, severe eczema, that's where it gets a little bit tricky, okay? Because now now your child is known to be a little bit more of a higher risk for food allergies. So if it's moderate to severe, or, and this is in the algorithm, or the child has a known history of another food allergy, then that's when you're going to probably, probably want to talk to your pediatrician about getting tested first, whether your pediatrician feels comfortable um, sending blood work. But most of the time I find that most of the pediatricians who refer to me will will refer them right away. Um, and then, um, you know, we'll talk about testing first and then we'll talk about, you know, what usually peanut is the one that you're the most concerned about. Um, but, you know, we'll talk about all the allergenic foods and, and what to do.
0: Besides, um, you know, babies with eczema being moderate ser- or moderate ser- or severe, is there any other incidents where testing should be done prior to introducing foods? I think you mentioned uh, um, before about maybe if they're siblings or whatnot, but is there any other kind of you need to get tested prior to introducing these foods? Honestly,
1: uh, other than the family family history, um, known history of eczema, and known history of current food allergy for the child themselves, that you know that we're discussing there's really no other reason to be tested. And again, we talked about this in the previous episode, that testing is not perfect. And we do have false positives. And so you don't want to test a healthy, normal child with no risk factors, because then you might have a false positive, and then you're going to eliminate that food when you really didn't need to eliminate that food. And then this brings us back to the whole, you know, early exposure, if you don't, expose that child early on, they can actually then develop sensitizing antibodies and then actually develop an allergy later on. So that's why you really don't want to even talk about testing unless there's some sort of risk factor there.
0: And so, you know, you, you briefly, you mentioned about, you mentioned this throughout the episode, but overall, when then should a child be referred to an allergist overall or for testing and or?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So for sure, if any parent is concerned, And, you know, they're nervous for any reason, like whether they have allergies or there's a family history of allergies or they feel like they tried introducing and there's some vague symptoms that they're not really sure about. So that would be a reason to refer to an allergist, you know, known history of anything more than just mild eczema that's easily treatable. That should be a referral. At that point, they probably may have been referred anyways. They're already probably in the care of an allergist. Um and then just known, known food allergy history in the family or food allergy in, in, in another existing food allergy in the child. Those would be the kind of reasons to, to refer.
0: You know, this is so great. I really appreciate this because I, these are a lot of the questions I get asked in my office and obviously on my sh- social media. The one question I wanted to go back to, which I don't think we, we got into because I asked too many questions at once, but what the difference between an allergy versus an intolerance? What's that difference?
1: All right. So really, the basis of the difference between a food allergy and an intolerance is what's going on inside the body. So with food allergy, we've kind of talked about that. Um, many times is it involves the immune system, right? So that that allergic antibody, the IgE antibody detects this food as foreign for some reason, right? And then it brings it to the allergy cell or the mast cell. It activates the mast cell, releases lots of different kinds of mediators, but the one that most people have heard about is, you know, histamine. Histamine leads to the symptoms that we've kind of talked about, a lot of the symptoms that we talked about, right? Like the the itching, the hives, the swelling, that kind of stuff, right? So that's, a food allergy in a nutshell. That's the immune system. Now when you're talking about a food intolerance, that's different. That does that is a non-immune system mediated Um, issue here okay what that involves actually is the gi tract or the gi system okay and so here your symptoms are going to reflect just that the gi system you'll have stomach discomfort sometimes nausea vomiting diarrhea there's not really going to be a risk of anaphylaxis here Um, like i said because it it involves the digestive system this is where you can kind of see the more delayed reactions you know how we said before with the the true immune system mediated food allergies those are usually going to be more immediate right this one you can actually have a little bit more delayed. It can um, occur from the body not being able to unable uh, being able to properly break down the food, um, and so like enzyme deficiencies. This is where lactose intolerance falls into play. Some people have sensitivities to food additives, reactions to just naturally occurring chemicals in the foods. This one is a lot trickier to test for, right? Because like I said, there's just not the immune system. So we're not testing for IgE or even the histamine response directly on the skin, which is what our skin test looks for. So this one's a little bit trickier to test for. Um, Oftentimes with a food intolerance, the person can or the child can actually tolerate small amounts of the food sometimes, but just not in larger quantities. So some people can't tolerate it at all, but oftentimes they can tolerate small amounts. Whereas with a real food allergy, there's really no gray zone there. You're either allergic or you're not. You either can't eat it or you can't.
0: That is a great that is a great way to put it. And I will probably be doing another episode with a GI doc about those intolerances. But like you said, that lactose intolerance. Like parents will be like, Well, well you know, my son will eat one yogurt and be fine, but then when he drinks a glass of milk, he's bloated. And so you're right, it's a dose-dependent kind of situation. Mm-hmm. And it is a completely different uh physiology besides allergies. And so thank you for that clarification. Now, what I wanted to, you know, obviously talk about too, which I mentioned at the beginning, is F-Pies. So if you can I have a feeling a lot of my uh, listeners may not even know what this is, but I think it's important to know. um, What does it stand for? What is it? Just kind of a basic overview, first of all.
1: Yeah, so a lot of your listeners may not have heard of this because it's actually pretty rare. They don't know the exact prevalence of it, um, but but we do know that it's pretty rare. So FPIs, it stands for... Food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome. This is an immune system-mediated food allergy, okay? But it is non-IgE. So it does not involve that allergic antibody. So it's different from these traditional food allergies we've talked about up until now, okay? Um, We know that, like I said, it involves the immune system, we don't know exactly what's going on, but we do know that something's going on on the cellular level, whether it be the allergy cells like the mast cells, whether it be the T cells, which are kind of um, a type of white blood cell that's part of your immune system, but we don't know what's going on, we just know that it involves the immune system somehow. The symptoms are different from the IgE-mediated food allergies in that you're not going to have like the skin involvement, shortness of breath, that kind of stuff. You will still have the GI system going on though here. So you'll have um, vomiting, diarrhea, um, usually dehydration. Now the difference is usually it's going to be very severe compared to IgE-mediated food allergies. Um, and then just like food allergies though, the reactions in f pies are usually triggered by ingestion of a particular food, okay? Um the reactions usually mimic like the sepsis-like picture or just having a severe GI bug. Like this kid just having a lot of vomiting, a lot of diarrhea. You actually, a lot of times it's mistaken for a viral GI bug um, or stomach bug, I should say. And so the child will be hospitalized for the severe dehydration. They could have growth, um, sometimes failure to thrive, they can be lethargic, uh, usually the symptoms are going to develop more hours after rather than again, immediate, like their typical food allergies, usually like three to four hours, or maybe one to four hours later, sometimes they can be within an hour. Um, and so it can be hard to identify exactly what food caused it, because it's a few hours later, and you have to rack your brain like, is this just a virus, you know, a, G, a stomach bug, or is it something that they eat?
0: Is there a certain age group that is more, and again, I know you said that there's obviously still so much coming out about it, but is there a certain age group that's more affected?
1: Yeah, usually it's going to be infants. Like usually it's going to affect infants and younger children. Um, And if you think about it, the foods that are most commonly involved are cow's milk, soy grains like rice, barley, and oats. So if you think about when that stuff is introduced, right, in a child, in it's going to be pretty early on. So cow's milk and soy, that could be in formula, so really, really early. Um, or it could be with the introduction of the first solid foods in the form of oatmeal cereal, rice cereal. So usually it's going to present early on in infancy. So it's usually kind of diagnosed based on history, because Again, remember, it's not that IgE type food allergy, so there's no good skin or blood test for it. They're pretty useless, actually, in this case. So it's going to be getting a good history. Sometimes you have to do an oral challenge to the to the potential culprit, um, but a lot of times it's just history. And, you know, once you remove it, if the symptoms are gone, you don't really have to confirm it with a, with a food challenge. You just avoid that food.
0: And because it obviously is more kind of looking at the GI system, is there, all, is there any blood in the stool or can there be, or is there always blood in the stool? Is that one of the signs and symptoms or no?
1: That's not a common sign and symptom of it. No, it's usually just diarrhea and, and vomiting and dehydration.
0: And what is the overall prognosis? I know you earlier on mentioned, you know, obviously that many children with food allergies can outgrow, especially if it's not a peanut or, you know, tree nut. But what about with F-Pies? Can they outgrow these allergens?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So um, there's no treatment for it except avoidance, right? We talked about that. You remove the food. But the good thing is, is that the children will outgrow F-Pies usually by age five. I would say most commonly by around three or four, but definitely by age five. Um, and then at that point, the way you'll kind of determine whether they've really grown out of it or not, is by doing um, a food challenge, usually kind of like every 12 to 18 months, you can try to introduce that food again, if they fail, it, you know, you wait another year, year and a half, and you try to introduce it again. But like I said, by five, usually, they're just going to grow out of it.
0: And this is great. Sharia, Sh- 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 I like love having you on because again, I'm like such an allergist like I just want to, I want to learn all of there is about allergies, and I, I love educating people <laughs> about this. So this is this is so great. We do have time actually for one other topic. Uh, you know, I was hoping that we'd be able to get to this. So you mentioned, you know, lactose intolerance. One of the biggest misconceptions I get is that people think that lactose intolerance is the same as something called cow milk protein allergy, and they are completely different entities. Can you talk a little bit more about what cow milk protein allergy is and how it may present in the infancy period?
1: Yeah, so that's actually, you're absolutely right. A lot of people mistaken that, the the two. And so milk protein allergy is another non-immune system mediated type allergy. And so I think that's why a lot of times there's some confusion there. And a lot of the symptoms are GI as well. And so people think, you know, my child has lactose intolerance. Um, but this one, milk protein allergy, usually is recognized kind of in the first year of life versus lactose intolerance is really rare in the first couple of years of life. Usually you're going to have that later. Um, so it's more commonly going to be milk protein allergy. And this one, we do know that it's about affects about 15% of children. Uh, history alone is usually all you need to diagnose this. So you know, I'm sure you get this all the time, because I don't even think we see this as much as allergists, because pediatricians have this on lock, you know, so <laughs> um, patients will come in, the parents will come in with their child, and they'll complain that, yeah, my child is just so, you know, gassy and crying all the time and upset and refusing feeding. And then, hey, there's a little bit of blood, you know, mucusy in the in the stool. <laughs> That's kind of the giveaway right there. And then all you have to do to confirm it is really eliminate the, um, you know, the cow's milk from the diet um, by either telling a breastfeeding mother to eliminate all dairy from her diet, which can be very difficult, but at least, and we'll talk about this in a second, it's not going to be forever. Um, And then also for formula-fed infants, you're going to use these hydrolyzed formulas. So essentially what this means is the milk protein is already extensively broken down so that the baby doesn't have to do it. Um, So that's usually kind of the treatment is eliminated and then they're fine. And then usually kids grow out of this by the time they're one. And at that point, you just say, okay, go ahead and try cow's milk, cheese, yogurt, whatever. Um, See, you know, it's rare that the kids will still have issues. But if they do, then, you know, you stop it again. You avoid it maybe for another six months and then you try it again.
0: And I'm happy that we're talking about it in this episode because I was going to talk about it with a GI doc because, again, it involves the GI system and some of the overlying sim, um, symptoms are colic symptoms, reflux, blood in the poop, but not all of those. Enti- and eczema can sometimes be a sign of cow milk protein, but not all of those things always mean cow milk protein allergy. Like it, You can have eczema and it not be, not be a cow milk protein allergy, but I think it's important that parents understand that if your child's exhibiting a lot of these symptoms, right? Spitting up, eczema, colic, um, blood in the poop for sure, that it's important to talk to your doctor. And you are right that we manage a lot of cow milk protein allergy without the help of our GI colleagues or allergy colleagues. Um, I obviously use a lot of my allergist colleagues for what we just spent the whole episode talking about. But yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to put this in because it is the kind of first quote unquote allergy that a family could see because, if a mother's drinking milk and obviously is breastfeeding, or if we're giving a baby, um, a formula that has mo- protein in it, this could be one of the first allergies that a baby gets before they start solid. So that's why I wanted, I'm happy that we went over that. Um, uh, Shreya, is there anything else you want to add? Because this episode is amazing. I know so many people are going to find it useful, but is there any other things that you want to add? Obviously, um, you guys all have to follow her at, Shreya Patel MD on Instagram, because she shares so much um, about her, um, obviously, field and mommyhood as well. But is there anything else you want to add today?
1: Uh, The only thing is that I just think, you know, remember, for parents out there, moms, dads, just no guilt when it comes to food allergies, okay, there's nothing that you did wrong. Um, A lot of it is just, you know, unfortunately, genetic makeup, environmental triggers that we can't really pinpoint, and so I have moms who come into me sometimes, you know, and they're like, oh, "I should have done this, and I should have done this," and you know, there's there's really no need for that because it's not your fault. And food allergies are something that they're just going to happen, you know, unfortunately, but um, they're they're something that we can very very well maneuver nowadays with these great, you know, plant based diets and, and the menus nowadays have gluten free everything. And so it's definitely something that is um, a lot easier to manage nowadays.
0: Oh, that's such a great message, because I get that a lot in my office. And, you know, as a new mom, also, that mommy guilt is gonna, is gonna be around in, in every sort of facet of mommying. And it's, it's so true. I mean, you're right that there is nothing that was done that you you know parents were like I should have introduced this earlier why did I do this maybe right. and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say all the things that I've heard I should I, I should have breastfed longer I should have why did I have a c-section I mean all these things that right. they're like they put their you they put guilt on themselves and I'm like guys no it is so much more than that in allergy immunology our microbiome everything that goes into our immune system is not just one thing or two things. It's a multitude of different things. Genetics being a huge component, obviously environment we talked about, but I agree with you completely, Shreya. I think that's such a great message because I don't want anyone listening to this to think that also one thing I hear is that, oh, I introduced, I, I was told this in the office. I I feel so bad. I introduced my, my daughter, um, peanuts and she had an allergy. Why did I introduce it? And Mm -hmm. I should have just never introduced it. And I'm like, no, mommy, you did the right thing by introducing it. You know, you, how would you have known? How would you have known? And uh, it's the fear of not introducing it that I worry about more, right? The parents who wait till one, two, like you said, like shellfish when they're three, when they eat that as a family. Um, The stuff you mentioned is so true. And if your family is eating all this stuff, like if you eat peanuts in your household, um, it is okay, obviously, unless there's really severe eczema and the stuff that we mentioned to go ahead and introduce it, right? It's really important also to ask your pediatrician at your four-month visit. And again, listen to my intro to solids episode, why we discuss solids at the four-month visit about what foods, you know, are safe. And your doctor should say that if you're otherwise healthy kid, that early introduction is the way to go. I'm bringing this up because still, and I know you agree, Shreya, is that still there are doctors out there that are saying to delay introduction of allergenic foods to one. And this was yeah. old recommendations. This was like, mm-hmm. this was like, I think probably up until like maybe four or five years ago. And yes, so exactly. it's really important that if you hear that and your child obviously does not have severe eczema or there's no family history of allergies, severe allergies, that you kind of say, well, why? And maybe question them a little bit because This is the kind of stuff that we need to stay on top of. Right. As as pediatricians and allergists, we are on top of these changes in obviously evidence based medicine. So I think that's a really important concept because I literally got told that a few days ago and I was like, oh, no, we're going to be talking about this on the episode because mommy felt so guilty. She's like, well, I called and they told me on the you know, someone told me that I shouldn't have introduced it till one. I'm like, no, 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 no. You did the right thing. you And I'm, I'm sorry your child had an allergy, but it wasn't anything that you did wrong. So thank you so much for that message. You're
1: welcome. This was really a pleasure. Thank you for having me again, Mona.
0: It is always a pleasure. And like I said, um, if you haven't already, you have to listen to the Eczema 101 because a lot of this kind of um, ties into eczema as well. And that was episode seven. And obviously follow Shreya Patel MD on Instagram. We Shreya and I have become really good friends because of this, because of Instagram and because of this podcast. And I'm sure I'll have her back on in the future. If you have any comments or questions, you can ask it on today's post. Obviously, we'll just give you general recommendations, not personal advice. But thank you again for being here today. Thanks so much, Mona. This was really fun. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, please leave a review, share it with a friend comment on my social media. And if you're not already, follow me at Pete's doc talk on Instagram. Love doing this for all of you. Have a great rest of your week. Take care. Talk to you soon.